Well, hello, friends. Happy Easter and a special welcome if you're joining us for the first time. We have been planning for today for a very, very, very long time and could not be more excited uh, to share the message with you this morning. I was with a pastor this week and we were talking about how we love Easter, but we have to admit it's a bit strange uh, because we all gather. It's like our highest attendance of the year in churches all over the world. And everybody already knows what we're going to talk about, Right. Um, and, and then we talked about those of you who just come twice a year on Christmas and Easter, and we love you. We're glad you're here, right? But we thought, you know, if we only came on Christmas and Easter to church, we probably would only come twice a year as well, because every time you come to church, you hear one of two messages, right? Jesus is born, or, or he comes back. That's how that, that goes. And, but here's the thing. I want to invite you to come back next week, because he did some stuff while he was alive. You should hear about it. <laughs> I'm just telling you. But I really do love Easter because Easter really is the perfect weekend for anybody who's even considering Jesus. Uh, because what we get to talk about today really, truly changes everything. And to, to show you what I mean, I want to start uh, by telling you about an unexpected conversation I had recently at a Hampton Inn hotel in Eastern Europe. Some of you didn't see that coming. Uh, over spring break, my family and I had the opportunity to travel to tropical, balmy Poland. And uh, my stepdad is Polish, and he wanted to show us where he was born and raised. And so we all got on a big jet, went across the Atlantic Ocean, checked into the Hampton, um, and had an absolutely incredible time. But during our first night in Warsaw, which is the capital, I spent some time with a guy who just might be the most interesting man in the world, okay? I mean, like the Dosekis guy has nothing on this guy. His name is Jason, and for the past 17 years, he's worked for a company called Backroads. Um, and what he gets to do for his job, and a few of us are going to be jealous here, is he gets to lead groups of people on high adventure trips to exotic locations all over the world for his job, okay? Few interesting things. He has no car. He has no permanent residence. He lives out of his suitcase. And he was in Poland for a few days before traveling to a country called Bhutan, which I had never heard of. Uh, and I came to find out it was in the eastern Himalayas near Tibet, and he was going there to meet a group of Australians to go hiking and biking and river rafting. And I said, so you're in Poland on your way to Bhutan. I said, where did you come from? He said, well, I came from Vietnam most recently. And I said, what were you doing in Vietnam? Was it cool? And he said, oh man, I did something I'd never done before. And he said, for me, that's really something. I said, what did you get to do? And he said, I got to eat a beating cobra heart. I googled it. It's a thing. I thought he was teasing me, right? Well, it's like he is literally the most interesting man in the world. And I just, as we were talking, I kept thinking my kids are looking at me going, Dad, you are so lame by comparison. Anyway. Well, eventually, as is often the case with me, our conversation turned to religion. Um, and I was curious because people who travel the world and interact with people from different faith backgrounds, I always love to hear their thoughts on religion. And so when I asked Jason, he made the observation that from his perspective, religions are fundamentally the same. I'm after traveling the world and meeting all sorts of different people. He said, I, I, I guess I've come to believe that they're all kind of seeking the same thing. Like they're seeking peace with God and they're seeking peace with themselves. 
So he says, as I think about it, religion has kind of those two purposes, peace with God, peace with self. And he said, to be fair, they had like, you know, unique prophets with unique messages and, and they have unique holy books containing unique revelations and instructions. But when you kind of boil it all down, they're all sort of going the same way. And I noted that in a sense, he's right. Many of the world's religions teach their followers to love and serve and give and forgive. And they teach us to move away from selfishness, and towards sacrifice for the benefit of others. Matter of fact, that's why many people think of the pursuit of God as climbing a mountain. Maybe you've, you've heard this or took a philosophy class. It's like there's this big mountain, God's at the top of the mountain, there are these different paths up the mountain. Each religion represents sort of a different path, but eventually, if you climb long and hard enough, you reach the top of the mountain. I said, so that, that's fair, but I also said to him, there is something that makes Christianity totally unique, and it's what we're gathered here today to talk about and to remember and to celebrate the resurrection. It really is hard to overstate the significance of the resurrection because when Jesus rose from the dead, it validated everything else that he said. And he said some pretty incredible things about himself, including the fact that he wasn't sent to show people the path to peace with God. He came to be the path to peace with God. We'll, we'll come back to that later. But whenever I mention a resurrection in conversations with people like Jason, uh, uh, the same question comes up, and it goes like this. So you seem like a fairly rational person. I've had a few say, except that you're a pastor, but whatever, okay? Um, you seem like a fairly rational person. How did you come to believe that Jesus literally rose from the dead? And my answer to that question has to do with the unbroken chain of witnesses to the resurrection. Let me explain. People started believing Jesus rose from the dead on that first Easter Sunday. And almost immediately, they started talking about it. And eventually, they wrote about it. And so there's an unbroken chain of witnesses going all the way back to those first eyewitnesses to the resurrection. Matter of fact, uh, these witnesses, they talk about it, then they write about it. That's how we got those four accounts of the life of Jesus that made their way into the New Testaments of your Bible. Two of the accounts, Matthew and John, they were actual eyewitnesses to the resurrected Jesus. The other two, uh, Mark and Luke, interviewed the eyewitnesses to come up with their accounts. In fact, check out how Luke begins his account of Jesus' life or his gospel. Here's what he says. He says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Like this Jesus thing is, is everywhere. People are writing about it, talking about it, just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the first eyewitnesses and servants of the word. We go back to the source. Next slide. With this in mind, he says, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, he said, I too decided to write an orderly account for you Oh, most excellent Theophilus. So we learned that Luke writes his account of Jesus' life for his friend Theophilus, who lived in the city of Rome. Next slide. He says, here's why I wrote, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you've been taught. They're unexpected, they're unusual, but they're true. And you should know that the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, write about Jesus after the resurrection because of the resurrection. In fact, had there been no resurrection, there would be no New Testament. If Jesus had stayed dead, nobody would have written anything about him. His crucifixion would have been a footnote in the history of the first century. So one of the reasons I believe in a literal resurrection is the unbroken chain of witnesses, including those gospel writers. And another reason I believe is a guy named Paul. 
And if you're unfamiliar with Paul, Paul had more to do with the development of Christianity than anybody else. And Paul absolutely, unequivocally believed that Jesus had rose from the grave because he had personally encountered him post-resurrection. And for Paul, that was a game changer. And Paul came to believe that the resurrection was the foundation of faith in Jesus. It was where everything started. And so there's a letter he writes to early Christians living in Corinth, which is a town in Greece. And they are hearing about this resurrection. And they're kind of wondering, okay, is it metaphorical? What do you mean resurrection? Dead people generally stay dead. And so to this group, here's what Paul writes. He says, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. He says, Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. He was buried, as in he was dead, dead, and he was raised on the third day according to scripture, and that he appeared to, he says, Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the 12, those first disciples, and after that, and this is stunning, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep, which is a first century Jewish way of saying they died, okay? And, and so Paul says, listen, if you come to Jerusalem, I can introduce you to literally hundreds of people who would say, he's back, I saw him with my own eyes. This is such a big deal. Later in the same letter, Paul says this. Paul writes, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. Paul says, you have to understand the foundation of the Christian faith is an event, a historical event. Something happened that changed everything and that something was the day Jesus rose from the grave. Without a resurrection, there would be no Christians. Without a resurrection, there would be no church. In fact, in preparing for today, I spent some time in nerd land, which a few of us enjoy, okay? And I read a book by a guy named Gary Habermas, who is one of the leading experts in the literal historical resurrection of Jesus. Here is one of the things he concludes in this book. He said, the resurrection was undoubtedly the central proclamation of the early church from the very beginning. He said, the earliest Christians didn't just endorse Jesus' teachings, they were convinced they had seen him alive after his crucifixion. He goes on. He says, that's what changed their lives and started the church. Certainly, since this was their centermost conviction, they would have made absolutely sure that it was true. So I believe in the literal historical resurrection of Jesus because it explains the survival of the church in the first century and because of those unbroken chain of eyewitnesses. Now, all that's interesting, but the truth is that Christians are not gathered all around the world today to celebrate the fact of the resurrection. The, the thing that makes us so excited are the implications of the resurrection, because when we fully understand what happened on the cross and on that first Easter Sunday, it really creates a context for our lives that impacts everything. It impacts how we live, how we love, how we mourn, how we hope, and even how we think about God. In fact, on that first Easter morning, there's an exchange that I want to unpack with you uh, with the time that remains between Jesus and one of his closest followers. And it's so precious and it's so powerful and it's so emotional, I think it captures the implications of what it means to be someone who lives their life believing that Jesus rose from the dead. But before I show you the exchange, I need to paint a little bit of context. In the days leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus, Jerusalem is filled to capacity because there's a Jewish feast called Passover. 
And there's a particular energy this year in Jerusalem at Passover because they believed that God had finally sent them the long-awaited Messiah, the promised one, who was going to restore them to prominence and prosperity on the world stage. They believed he would be a political or military leader who would finally get them out from under the heel of the Roman Empire, the global military superpower that ruled in Israel in that day. And they believed that Jesus was this promised Messiah. And so on the Sunday before the first Easter, Jesus enters Jerusalem riding on a donkey, fulfilling a prophecy from an Old Testament prophet that one day the Messiah would do just that. And the people of Jerusalem line the streets with palm branches and they wave their palm branches and they basically say, Hosanna, which means God save us. And if you were here last week, you had kids like I did, they came home with palm branches that quickly became lightsabers. Maybe that was just in my car. But anyway, that's what's going on. They believed he was the one. And they were sick of Rome. They were sick of the soldiers in their streets. They were sick of the taxes. They were sick of not being able to be everything that they knew that God wanted them to be. Everyone on that first Palm Sunday thought they knew who Jesus was and thought they knew what Jesus was going to do. But Jesus' popularity was a threat to the Jewish religious establishment that ran the temple in Jerusalem because they had a special arrangement with Rome. Rome basically said, listen, as long as you keep the people at peace, as long as you keep them from rebelling, then you get to stay in power. And Jesus threatened the peace because Jesus could draw a crowd. He was bold, he was brash, he was direct, he wasn't particularly political. In fact, after entering Jerusalem and having the, the palms waved at him, he goes to the temple, which the Sadducees who ran the temple had turned into a tourist trap in the first century, $4 bottles of water and the whole deal, right? And Jesus stages a riot. He literally flips over the tables of people changing money in the temple courts and flips over the table of those selling doves for sacrifice. And then when the religious leaders confront him, he gives them a little speech that's recorded for us and he basically ends by calling them mute dogs, which I'm not sure about you, but I think Dale Carnegie would say that's not a great way to make friends and influence people. Jesus, sorry about that, buddy, right? Um, but the, he challenges them and they decide to act. And they develop a plan with one of Jesus' closest friends to betray him. And shortly thereafter, Jesus is captured and he's falsely accused and he's tried and he's convicted and he's crucified by the Roman Empire. And so Sunday starts with this celebration that he's the Messiah, he's the promised one, and the week ends on Friday with Jesus' dead body taken off the cross by two wealthy men, prepared it for burial, placed it in a tomb, and sealed the tomb. And, and this is key. Everyone thought that the story of Jesus was over on Good Friday. In fact, there were no Jesus followers the evening of the crucifixion. You say, well, why? It isn't that they didn't appreciate what Jesus taught. It isn't that they didn't appreciate the miracles. And it isn't that Jesus didn't say a bunch of really memorable things. The problem with Jesus was, was that he claimed too much about himself. At one point he said, I am the resurrection and the life. And so if you're the resurrection and the life, how can you be crucified? At another time, he says, you know, I am the son of God, but, but the sons of God don't end up hanging on a cross. And so when Jesus died, even though everyone had high hopes for him, even though he'd healed the sick, everyone's faith in Jesus vanished. Just so we're clear, there were no Christians after the crucifixion. There was nothing to hold on to. There was no movement to keep alive. There was no message worth repeating. The game, as far as they were concerned, was over. 
That was Friday. And then on Saturday, you would find the first disciples of Jesus holed up in the city of Jerusalem, terrified because the same religious leaders who had killed Jesus would probably come for them as well. And it was dark and they were confused and they were frustrated and there were tears. They had expectations that had gone unfulfilled. They had left everything to follow Jesus. They felt like their lives were over. Saturday was dark for those first followers of Jesus. And then, and then came Sunday. And this is where I want to jump in. It's in John's account of Jesus' life, John chapter 20. Here's, here's what John tells us happened. He says, early on the first day of the week, that's Sunday, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene, and, and Mary was a follower of Jesus. She actually became a follower of Jesus because Jesus had healed her. We learned in a different spot of seven demons. And as I read that, I thought that seems like a lot and someone counted, okay? So she becomes a follower of Jesus and she goes to the tomb and she saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. And what you have to, what you have to see here is that Mary was not expecting a tomb that had been opened. She was expecting a sealed tomb. And she gets there and the stone has been removed from the entrance. And what happens next is critical because it tells us what she thought happened. Because as it turns out, she didn't think, oh my goodness, he's back. Mary runs, finds a disciple somewhere in the city of Jerusalem. And here's what John tells us. He says, so she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one that Jesus loved. And just pause for a second here. You're like, who is, who is that? Well, that's actually John who's writing the account. John writes himself into the story <laughs> as the one that Jesus loved. And I can just imagine after John passed from this life, there was a bit of a chit chat between him and Jesus. And, and just Jesus looked at him and said, the one that Jesus loved. He goes, yeah. Remember all that time we talked about humility? Yeah, okay. The one Jesus loved. There you go. He's like, just so you know, that, that was me. Okay. And he says, uh, so the one Jesus loved and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. Mary, what happened? Someone stole Jesus' body and we don't know where they have put him. Mary's like, I want to go pay my respects. I want to kneel outside the tomb. I want to thank you. I want, to, I want people who Jesus has touched to have a place to go. And, and he isn't in there. Someone took him. And we're not sure where they put him. Nobody was expecting a resurrection. Or as I like to say on each, on each Easter, and this is one of my favorite moments of the year. So here we go. Ready? <clears throat> Ta-da. Nobody expected nobody. <laughs> Mic drop. There we go. Yeah. All right. So notice... Again, that Jesus' first disciples are not at the tomb. They're in hiding. Mary burst through the door. Someone stole the body. And that would have made sense to them. Because Jesus had a lot of enemies who hated him. And Mary and the disciples knew that if Jesus' enemies had discovered that someone had properly buried his body, they would want to steal the body and desecrate it and hide the body, destroy the body, so that no one could ever pay respects to it again. The last thing they wanted was for Jesus' tomb to become a shrine. And so in Mary's mind, like, things are getting worse and worse and worse. Despair upon despair. I, it's like, she's like, I can't even just go visit the place where they lay his body. And Peter and John don't know what to do, so they just run to the tomb. They actually race to the tomb. It's another funny part of the story. But, but there's nobody there. They get there. The rocks rolled away. They look. They're confused. They're disturbed. And they go back to the city. And meanwhile, Mary Magdalene... Um, She's completely undone. 
And she's walking around the streets of Jerusalem and she finally just decides she's going to walk back to the tomb because she just, she's like, I, I literally don't know what else to do. And she, she's, she's sitting outside the tomb and she's weeping and she's mourning. And eventually she bends over and, and she looks into the tomb. And it's not empty. She looks in and she sees two men dressed in white and she didn't know who they were. It turns out they're angels and the angels ask Mary a question that for me resolves a centuries old conversation uh, about whether or not angels are men or women. And maybe that's just seminary students that have these conversations, but you know, you wonder. Um, and here's, here's what the angels ask Mary. Uh, they said to her, woman, why are you crying? And see, we know that angels were women because no man would ever ask a woman, why are you crying, right? It's a bad plan. Sorry, that was just for fun. Okay. <clears throat> So why are you crying? Here's, here's, what, here's what she said. She said, they've taken my Lord away. Again, not, I mean, he's, his body's stolen, she said. And I don't know where they put him. And at this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. And this is just great. But she did not recognize that it was Jesus. Because again, she wasn't expecting a resurrection. Jesus apparently looked different, not very Jesus-y. We don't know why. Mary doesn't recognize him. And, and she turns back and keeps looking into the tomb. And I imagine at this moment, Jesus gets this huge grin on his face because he is back and everything about everything is about to change. So Mary turns away from Jesus and he asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? And this is awesome. Thinking he was the gardener out to do a little weeding on Sunday morning, right? She said, sir, if you've carried him away, like maybe you took him, right? I mean, I, I, it doesn't make any sense. Tell me where you've put him and I will get him. Like, I, I, I want to know where he is. And then everything changes with a word. Jesus looks at Mary and says her name. He just says, Mary. And, and like scales fell off Mary's eyes and all of a sudden she got it. She got, I imagine she dropped to her knees. Like, nobody saw that coming. And he tells her to go back and tell the disciples that he's back. <laughs> and, and, um, and you're like, how did that go? Not well. Come back next week. We're going to talk about it, right? Um, they're like, oh, now Mary's crazy. Fantastic, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, Mary Magdalene does, though. She went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And you should know too that it's a big deal that a woman was the first witness to the resurrection because in the ancient world, women didn't have credibility. They couldn't testify in court. And so one of the things that people talk about is, you know, maybe John, you know, made up this account, but then scholars look at it and say, you know what, if, if John were gonna make up this account, he would not in the first century have made a woman the first witness to the resurrection, which leads us to a great question. Do you know why John said Mary was the first person to see Jesus after the resurrection? Ready? Because Mary was the first person to see Jesus after the resurrection. Thank you. I have a degree in logic. Not really. Okay. So Mary brings this message back to the first disciples. I've seen Jesus. He's alive. God has come through. Jesus was who he said he was. And we thought this thing was over, but it's just getting started. My friends, the resurrection changed everything for Mary and the resurrection has the power to change everything for us as well. It has the power to become the context for every decision that we make and every relationship that we enter. It's the context for everything we do with our time. It impacts the way we dream, the way we plan, 
the way we treat other people. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, you can know that when you pray to your heavenly father, he hears you. Because Jesus, who literally came back from the dead, said that when you pray to your heavenly father, he is listening. Because of the resurrection, you can trust that there's life after this life because Jesus, who again literally rose from the dead, promised his guys that they would be forever with God. And probably the best news of all, because Jesus rose from the dead, you can trust him that his death can bring you peace with God. In this life and after this life. Because when Jesus rose from the dead, it validated everything he said, including, and I want to show you one more piece of scripture. It'll be up on the side screens. He said this one day. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes or trusts or puts their faith in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives believing in me will never die. And then he's speaking to a woman and he just asked her a question that I think he asked all of us. Do you believe this? Can you lean into this reality? Because it changes everything. On that first Easter Sunday, everything changed and nobody saw it coming. On the cross, Jesus paid the debt of the sins of the world, giving us a gift that we could never earn by our efforts. And on that first Easter Sunday, God provided the ultimate solution to the human condition because on that first Easter Sunday, Jesus conquered death itself. And friends, that's why Christianity is radically different than every other faith tradition. Jesus wasn't simply another prophet who claimed to know the way to peace with God. Jesus claimed to be the way to peace with God and then made a way through his death and resurrection. And nobody understood what he was talking about until that first Easter Sunday. On that day, in that moment, he became nothing less than our living hope. 